Welcome to Two Dope Boys in a Podcast. I'm Michael Brooks. I'm Phil McKenzie. Two Dope Boys is a shout out from the margins. Each week we break down trends using the lens of culture to shed light on what's significant to your future and why. Phil, how you doing, man? What's up, brother? What's going on? Long time no see. Well, I know. I or here. Vacation. I was vacation. I was, I was laying low. I was up getting some lake time up in Massachusetts. Yeah, we had a blackout last Not that week. that exotic. A literal blackout. A literal blackout. We had a whiteout on this show. <laughs> <laughs> we got super producer Matt Leck with us, and we have a really, really special. This is going to be a little bit of a different show. We're going to break free of the segments, so there's going to be no brand f up. I mean, I guess everything is kind of what's up and what's next in a metaphysical sense, but we're not going to go segment by segment. We have a very, very important person with us today. You've heard the man's name before because he's the reason. That Phil and I know each other. He's the original crew. He's Genesis crew. Alnor Lada. Thank, Thank you for having me, guys. Would you introduce just yourself a bit to the Dope Boys universe? They know that you're the reason. Yeah, they've heard the Phil name. And I they've teased out the story. But talk a lot of shit together on multiple platforms. But you know, I, I can't yeah. really take attribution for anything because I, I, I don't believe in causality or linearity. I just believe in cosmic entanglement. So somehow the three of us are entangled. Um, and you, wanna, you want me to do a little intro? I do. Okay. Um, also, you know, identity, right? What an interesting thing. This sort of made up concept of me as a as a separate unit. See, this is why you and I became friends because <laughs> we immediately started having conversations <laughs> like this, and uh, and then it would always be kind of you know cut with. And at the same time, we need to beat those motherfuckers. Yeah, yeah. Just like, there's a war. Like, sank, yeah, it's all relative. It's all a construct, and we're at war. Yeah, both are true simultaneously. You know, right. there there is no no duality. And this is my issue with, you know, the new age people, right? They have this fear of duality and just the fear of duality creates duality. Right. Um, so I don't know if that's a good transition or not. You're getting essence introduction right here. Yes. Um, so yeah, my name is Alnur. I know you both very well, uh, in different ways. Um, I run a organization called The Rules, which is a, an activist network, uh, focused on the root causes of inequality and climate change. And um, we work with social movements, peasant movements, farmer movements, indigenous movements to try to tell the story of, of the revolution that's already happening and connecting the dots between these different groups. And we have a think tank arm that tries to get more radical ideas into the mainstream. And we have an organizing arm that works directly with these groups. What are the reasons and what's the revolution? Hmm. That's the, the $70 trillion question, right? I don't ask questions that are less. <laughs> and, you know, I'll also preface with, um, I don't know if, if I have the answer to that, right? I, I, right. Uh, well, what do you see maybe is a better way? Yeah, I, I think part of the, you know, we, we go to what's the root, right? What's the root of our current poly crisis, this malaise of, of modernity? And yes, there's an economic driver for that, right? Of course, the root is capitalism. And then we can say, what's the root of capitalism and its debt-based currency and this need for perpetual growth? But what's the root of that? And the root of that is probably our, our separation from nature that started with the Neolithic revolution. And late-stage capitalism, this moment we are at of sort of peak hierarchy and peak patriarchy and peak psychosis, 
is the logical conclusion of, of 5,000 years of modernity that was based on scarcity and growth and male superiority and white superiority and all of those other things that have fed into the, the capitalist superstructure. And is there a solution? Well, of course there is, because the rules are man-made and the rules are generative and the rules are deciding how we're incentivizing people uh, to, to sort of behave in the way they're behaving, right? We have a system that values short-termism and greed and psychopathy and is inherently life-denying. And so, uh, you know, I think those constructs can be changed. Um, how that happens, that that's the question. And sort of what I see is is... The old models of, of activism are, are breaking down, you know, protests Definitely. and petitions. And th that doesn't work in the way it used to. It doesn't mean that it's unnecessary. It's just one part of the ecosystem. And we think a lot more about culture change and how do we hack the dominant discourse and, and the culture and, and media itself and the, you know, the self-perpetuating mimetic viruses of, of capitalism. It's interesting that you talked about entanglements, you know, in, instead of thinking about this, this linear way of charting even relationships. Mm. And it sounds like there is portions of that breakdown that you gave that are somewhat linear in the way we think about it in terms of the passage of time. But then the entanglements, these kind of complex problems are all interrelated. How do you see the the protest movements or different ways of breaking through all of that being effective given that the what you laid out is so entangled i, I think part of what's happening is uh, our response to the crisis is part of the crisis and there's uh, part of what we need to do is the self-reflection but that's not mutually exclusive to action. And if we look at the, the various responses to the crisis right now, and we look at the, the, the left's response or progressive movement's response, where have we, we always been? We've, we've been in this place of reaction to a dominant system. That's the signature imprint of, of leftist thought. And even the sort of the, the, the rise of, let's say, Marxism in, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, it, it was a sort of offshoot in some ways of Enlightenment logic. It was rationalism battling rationalism with axiomatic logic and this uh, sort of materialist conception of the world. And if we're trying to fight facts with facts to our rationalist capitalist overlords, we're going to lose that battle. And we're going to operate in this very limited set of tools that we've been operating with for the last 200 years. And, and then we look at the other response, the, the, the more spiritual response, you know, or the new age response to this, which is, you know, the universe exists within us and we have to do the inner work. And if we change our inner reality, somehow that's going to change the external reality. And that may be partly true as well. And my instinct is that's going to play a role. Right, we we do need a, a different level of, of of consciousness, but what happens with that is it's not integrated. There, I don't know many Buddhists who are actually changing our material three D reality in, in meaningful ways, right? And and so so both of them somehow have this half answer 
that that is is useful in its own right, but is is striving for some some evolution, some concrescence to another way of being. And protest is going to play a role, and the inner work is going to play a role. But some other change is is beckoning us, and I don't think any of us know what that is. Do you think that part of it is possibly like? Just think about this idea of things becoming more synchronized. Mm. Like, you know, these splits don't work in ourselves. They don't work strategically. They don't work kind of programmatically. But one of the ways that I think those kind of two areas are starting to overlap, and even for people who still say, as an example, have a very materialist conception, and maybe they're not as interested or as open in like a spiritual dimension. But when people are, but, you know, take it in that more limited context, when they're more willing to say, you know, and it it just crack the door a little bit, like, well, why shouldn't like Bernie Sanders be president? You know, why shouldn't Jeremy Corbyn be prime minister of the UK? What's wrong with asking more of ourselves collectively? What's wrong with conceiving of outcomes that aren't just built on incredibly narrow premises? I think in some ways we're starting to do that process a little bit because the interchange is the imagination that you're willing to apply to the public sphere. And that affects how we start to think about politics and our outward action. And it does affect the basic premise on some limited level of just of not just thinking like because because i think if you you know if we're in our 30s 20s and 40s until the last couple of years i don't think that there's anybody who's involved in any type of progressive movement or politics that had really if we're being honest with ourselves and we might have been involved in any number of radical things and radical undertakings but at the end of the day whether it was working in the nonprofit sector or trying to do corporate social responsibility or trying to influence radical change through protests or certainly electoral politics, the underlying premise was how can we mitigate what's bad through successful intervention? That's really what everything comes down to. And the fact that now there is a little bit of an opening of, well, how would we actually like things to look? Why don't we have, you know, I mean, again, the simple stuff, Medicare for all, free college, it seems like there is an inner process to that because people are starting to get less locked in what they think is possible or desirable. So maybe some of that interplay is happening that you're talking about a little bit in that sense. I, I think it is happening. There's definitely a, a shift happening. Even we, we, I think Standing Rock is the uh, the yeah. great emblem of that in so many ways, definitely. right? Definitely. Yeah. Talk about that. You know. I was at Standing Rock in October for, for about 10 days. And it, w- it was a transformative experience to, it, it was everything I wish Occupy was. It was a ceremony. It was prayer. It was led by elders. There was this intergenerational complex dynamic happening. Uh, there was th- this sense of this is not just about a pipeline. This is about a culture that needs to extract fossil fuels and, uh, spew carbon into the atmosphere for the the benefit of a tiny elite largely in the west and 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 i think this is what's happening right now i'm not against reform and and i think 
although a lot of reform is highly reactionary, what what the what reform is is missing is this broader structural perspective, the, this understanding of of how the the entire operating system works and how the dots are connected, and because. Uh, Every solution we just want to ameliorate, right? And it's the solutionist mindset. Right. And if everyone is just focused on these little solutions, we may feel better about ourselves, but there's still a system that requires perpetual GDP growth and all of these other things. And and that system is very synchronized. I think that's the other problem is that, right. that, that we're playing inside somebody else's turf. Right. And until you can redefine the turf, we'll always be at a disadvantage. Right. And this is where imagination comes in, yeah. why imagination and holding that vision is so important. And and the people who are doing the, the more contemplative work, they're not holding a vision for a post-capitalist world because they don't even really understand how the capitalist system works. They're not interested. They'll tell they'll say things like, I'm not interested in politics or economics or ideology. And and my response to that is, you know, ideology is always a background condition. If you're not interested in ideology, you're part of somebody else's ideology. Yeah, lack of interest is ideology right right just you know you're paying tax in the united states so five percent of the gdp is going to the military industrial complex so you're funding war by the very act of denying ideology it's that old howard zinn line you can't be neutral on a moving train right 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 and so i, I think what what's coming together now is people are understanding this broader superstructure you know the fact that thomas piketty could write a 800 page social science textbook on uh, called capital of the 21st century and it becomes the best-selling social science textbook of the uh, i don't know 10 years or 15 years or something says something you know there's this moment and even even naomi klein's book this changes everything the idea of you know i used to say climate change was created by capitalism and people would think you were crazy for having that structuralist perspective and now it's common sense it's common sense and it's a big cultural shift when people are pretending to have read capital instead of pretending to have read thomas friedman yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, um, yeah. definitely, there there is something happening. So uh, there's this overlay of, of a more structural analysis. There's this, um, uh, let's say, a deeper inquiry and and a holding of a vision that is broader than um, how do we get healthcare and how do we uh, reduce poverty and in all of those old you know sort of development ways and and a much bigger vision for what this more beautiful world could be. And then there's also this this interesting spiritual dimension, I think, that's coming into the political sphere, where people are starting to understand that the the inner work is critical. It's it's not the end point, you know. Th- and this is where the the uh, we sort of depart from from New Age thinking. It's not the end point. It's the it's it's the prerequisite in some ways. You know, the meditation is the prerequisite for the revolution. We or we'll just replicate. The old hierarchies, right? We just impose better policy or better rules or better systems, but we're at the same level of consciousness. We're going to repeat the exact same mistakes. And the Bolshevik revolution showed that to us, right? That this is, that's the natural outcome if you're not actually doing the inner work and the outer work simultaneously. You mentioned that there was a disconnect between what you saw at a standing rock and an Occupy, mm-hmm. just as an example of, of, putting those two things sort of on two sides of the spectrum. And and then in your in your response you kind of walk through this this thinking, this structuralist thinking, and mention authors like Piketty and Naomi Klein and, and others. You know, how do you how do I guess all of us find a way to more effectively bridge gaps and and find ways to to have more of an imagination? Because one of the things I'm often struck by is that I have friends um, who are in 
let's call it traditional sort of um, NGO structures. And what I mean by that is they spend a lot of time at the UN. They spend a lot of time at the World Economic Forum and things like that, you know, just to paint a picture. And then I would see, you know, things that you're working on and, and others that seem to be so disconnected from that entire world that seems to get a lot of, you know, somewhat mainstream attention, a lot of um, resources, but doesn't seem to really solve anything. And speaking to that personal work, these people are not ill-intended, if that makes sense. You right. know, they, they actually are doing work that they feel is important, but it's totally away from work that you and others are doing. How do you find common ground in those spaces that seem to be separate, not just philosophically, but also financially and any number of other things? Is there a way to do it? That's a, that's a great question. That's a, that's a lifelong in inquiry, right? And well, I'll say one thing about Standing Rock and then I'll say one thing about uh, what the system rewards. And, and, and the two are related, but just, Roll with me for a sec because yeah, yeah. they'll seem disconnected at first. Always roll with me, man. <laughs> always, always. Um, Dope boys. So, so <laughs> the 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 Standing Rock point is interesting because there there is a cosmology that's rooted in Sioux culture and First Nations culture that is based on interdependence with nature and reverence for mother and uh, th these values are are imbued within that movement because it has a culture and it has. It's bound to place. It bound. It's bound to geography, which is in many ways uh, one of the definitions of what it is to be indigenous. It is to be of place. And when you are of place, you have relationship with place, and you understand the broader relationship with all of life. And, and that's what we're missing ideologically. And how we do that as people who have been socialized in in modernity, in a, a Western capitalist faux democratic system, is that we have to deprogram ourselves. That that is uh, that that is our job, right? Is to de-school ourselves from from the psychosis of Western progress and this idea that progress is linear and it's it should be mirrored everywhere in the world the way it's mirrored here, even though we're deeply unhappy and deeply disconnected and and all of these things, and that requires in many ways for us to go back to first principles, to understand for ourselves our own answers on on our cosmovision. Why are we here as a species and individually? Where do we think we're going? Um, you know, all the major branches of, of philosophy that have been academicized, you know, and turned into epistemology and uh, existentialism. And these are just basic questions that we should, our education system should have, or even our family life or our community life should create the space to cultivate and, and their inquiries. And what the rationalist worldview says is, well, no, a bunch of smart people have figured it out. And here's the schools of thought. And you sign up to one of these schools of thought. And religion does the same thing. It takes away all of that curiosity, all of that wonder and tells us, uh, you know, our purpose is to serve this white bearded God in this way. And if we just listen to these 10 commandments and pay our tithes you know we check our boxes and 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 um culture is a blinding force it's a constraint as as terence mckenna always used to say culture is not your friend 
that's not true for all culture. I wouldn't necessarily say that for many indigenous cultures. And sure, of course, there's aspects of their culture, uh, and we don't want to romanticize all indigenous cultures that uh, that we wouldn't agree to. But Western culture is particularly vicious in in. in what it was born out of, right? It was born out of separation from nature, the taming of nature, patriarchy, colonialism, imperialism, slavery. All of these things are embedded in our dominant culture. And we, we are enjoying the fruits of that culture without, with, and at the same time believing we don't have to inherit its sins. And, and the two don't go together. And so then the question is, well, what do we do? I think partly what we have to do is go to boundary dissolving states. And you can do that through meditation or psychedelics or tantra or whatever, you know, truth is a pathless land. Mass into tantra. <laughs> Just to be clear. Yeah, he talks that shit so he talks about it all the time. Yeah. yeah. My, yeah. my preferred yeah. methodology is the plants. You know, I, I think uh, uh, every sophisticated culture uh, has had sacraments. They've had a symbiotic relationship with plants, whether that's psilocybin or as, as you know, the Incas had with ayahuasca, the Egyptians with uh, blue lotus, the Indians with ganja and mandrake root. And actually humbling yourself to the plants, is, it seems to me there's a clue in that. You know, the plants are uh, hundreds of millions of years older than human beings and have this evolutionary head start. But we're so arrogant that we somehow believe that technology we created is more advanced than um, life on this planet that is evolutionarily superior to us in the magnitudes of, of, of thousands. It's really funny when you read like kind of like pop accounts where people will say there'll be some really, you know, great new understanding of how some ecosystem works or something like that. And the takeaway will be like, you know, this tree ring works like the Internet. And it's like, dude, <laughs> like this is reverse order. Yeah, exactly. Like, but you know, and it's it, the thing that occurs to me that's really this is almost like the kind of cultural corollary. Like one of the big concerns that we have to deal with right now is we're at such a crisis point that we have obviously the resurgence of far right politics globally. Obviously, here in the United States, that's very obvious, but it's an international phenomenon. And one of the things that if you look at the kind of sociological research behind that instinct for far-right politics, some of it does have to do with byproducts of neoliberal economic policies. Some of it is, it's like, you know, Bill Fletcher, who I talk to a lot, he said, uh, it's like uh, far-right populism is the herpes of capitalism, that capitalism weakens the immune system and then it flares up culturally. I think that that's very true. But there's also this desire in a, in a really unhealthy and misdirected way for place and order that you're, that you're talking about the healthy version of, mm. I think. Like, I think this is another really important thing that we need to start figuring out now and something that, um, this guy Ken Wilbur did influence me on this idea of like pre and post in a certain way. Like, there is the deep recognition that being connected from geography, place, and community is a major problem in our condition. And this romanticization of like, we're just these sort of like bodiless global travelers. And that's like the way to world peace, um, which is actually, you know, that was like the, even the rhetoric of like the 1990s. That was the kind of like globalization fantasy. We need to recreate a sense of home and connection well, there, and then there's this really toxic, misdirected, distorted version of that, which is providing that answer, which is like home and connection is your race, 
or you know your country as defined by who it excludes outside of its sovereign so all of the impulses you're talking about i think it's important that you know people who might be less interested or less open to these kind of modes of discourse or figuring things out whether we use words spiritual or whatever else you need to be tuned into these things because these human desires are going to show up and they're going to manifest in whatever way and they can manifest at standing rock or they can manifest at a you know global trumpism mm. you know they show up in different ways totally and and this is related to, to this the second part of your question on uh, the the reward systems and how yeah. the reward systems work so i i think it's important to say that if we look at what the economic operating system is whatever we want to call it neoliberalism the you know market fundamentalism what it is is it's it's a complex adaptive evolutionary system it's alive it's the greatest frankenstein the greatest artificial intelligence human beings have ever created in some ways and so what what the system and so we say the system but this is what we mean by the system this thing that just adapts right and it it, it co-ops any force whether that be a good impulse or a bad impulse, and finds a way to you know sell it back to you and commodify it, right? There was Occupy posters selling in Walmart for fifty nine dollars in December two thousand and eleven, like two months after Occupy. Right. Plastic frames made in China went through the entire Guy Fox masks. Did you ever see that picture of the Guy Fox masks being made at a Chinese sweatshop? That was the kind of it's quintessential the, it's, it's photo the, of that. Time. Right. It's yeah. the ultimate symbol of, of, of uh, how that co-optation works. And so when you understand how that system works, you're like, okay, well, this is the dominant system, right? And what does the, the dominant system reward? Well, we know what it rewards. We just have to look around us to see the plunder and the pillage and the destruction. That's what it rewards. But yet we're told the opposite. We're told somehow there's a merit system. And if you work really hard and go to the right schools and do all of these things that uh, you'll you'll – be rewarded for that. And if you don't, you're a failure, right? Poor people are somehow stupid and haven't worked hard it's enough. Moral and, failing. Immoral. Right. And, yeah. and it sort of ignores all the structural drivers. And maybe what they are are not willing to be as psychotic as the Trumps and the Obamas and, you know, everyone else, the Lloyd Blankfeens of the world. And so when you see the world in that way that, oh, I see, these people are just being rewarded by a system that rewards psychopathy. Then you look at the covers of Fortune magazine or whoever's on television or advertising in a very different way, right? And so the, the people who work at the UN or the Gates Foundation or in ad agencies or whatever, they're not necessarily bad people, right? It's, it's, it's more of, um, you know, the, the, Hannah Arendt used to talk about the, the banality of evil. It's more the banality of goodness, they, they've convinced themselves that they're somehow contributing to the system, but of course they're being rewarded by the system in a certain way, and that blinds them to seeing the broader structural factors. And, and when you talk to these people and you say, hey, look, you're trying to promote so-called development on the African continent, right? All this Africa rising bullshit, yeah. and let's increase foreign <laughs> direct investment and create entrepreneurs and access to financing and microloans and, and all of mobile. that stuff. Everything's and, uh, connected by a smartphone. Right, and, and it's like, well, guys... Um, every dollar of wealth created, about 93 cents goes to the top 1%. So by definition, wealth creation creates income inequality. Every dollar of wealth created heats up the planet because it's all linked into a fossil fuel extractive system. So how could more foreign direct investment ever solve the problems that are created by capital? Well, of course, if you're the 1% and you're the beneficiaries of capital, what other strategy do you have? And so... 
it's very hard to examine your own moral framework when you're the beneficiary of a moral framework that is in se- itself inherently psychotic. Because then you have to look in the mirror and say, I'm benefiting from this system. So the way I find the, the, the interesting people is you go to the margins. You go to those oppressed spaces, and that's always where the interesting stuff happened. The, you know, the civil rights movement would never have happened if it wasn't for the infrastructure of black churches. The, right. the, the feminist movement would never have happened if it wasn't for the organizing spaces of, of kitchens and places where women came together. It's, it's where those people come together is where the interesting stuff happens. And that's clearly never going to happen at the UN or the Gates Foundation or in Silicon Valley or in Wall Street. Those people, have opted in to be perpetuators of the status quo. And they may tell us otherwise. And a lot of that is alibi and self-rationalization because somewhere they know that the system they're supporting is destroying life itself. And we probably have 20 years left of the Western way of living at best, if you believe the climate science. Um, that's what we always say. Shout out from the margins. Yeah, that's our tag. We're synchronized. So we, given your work with the rules, there were a couple of moments that well one moment in particular where I remember waking up and thinking about your work in particular even though I don't think I ever emailed you about this specifically was when the um, Panama Papers was released because it seemed so much in line with the direction that the rules was taking in terms of I remember when you first launched it you were really looking at like tax havens and you're like one of the first people I remember kind of going to this root cause of like where the money is hidden. You know, do you, do you take any sort of, um, joy is not the right word, but do you feel like things are moving in direction where the work that you're doing and the direction you're taking it is somehow becoming normalized? You alluded to that a little bit, but do you feel like positive about about these things in any way because sometimes when you spend a lot of time in these spaces it's easy to get in a place of like i don't know what did my friend call it nihilism Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know Mm. yeah yeah I, i think nihilism is is a privilege of the rich and we we have to be hopeful and there's a there's lots of evidence uh, on why that's a good strategy right and 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 not just as a as a rationalization strategy it's actually happening you know i really feel that the revolution is happening in many ways and it's just not what we think it's going to be like and and that's the problem with knowing and and and, and sort of coming with the idea of knowing and you know e- even some of the work that we did early on and and in and try to put a light on um, the role of the city of London in, in global wealth extraction and, and tax havens. And even on the alternative side, the role of regenerative farming as a solution to climate change or the potential power of universal basic income as, as a Trojan horse strategy for rethinking work and, and economics and GDP growth and all of that. Um, I, I think ideas just want to be free. And nobody owns them. And as soon as we get into the mode of, uh, of attribution or pride, we end up replicating those capitalist structures. And, you know, then I'm going to funders and say, look how we influence the Pope's encyclical or, or whatever. And it's like, uh, I, I don't know what happened, right? I, some quantum entanglement happened. And there's definitely a trajectory uh, of a more holistic way of thinking. And, and there is this sort of spark off of movements around the world that the Western media can't see. 
it's not hardwired to see it, nor does it want to tell us the story, right? For example, there's 30 plus African awakenings happening on the continent, uh, Occupy style popular protests, the umbrella movement in Hong Kong, you know, in this place that has been subjugated by, by China. Uh, uh, it's the pro-democracy movements of Russia and India, the fair hike protests in, in Brazil and the student movement in Brazil, Standing Rock, Indignados. These are not what, what the media wants to tell us is these are somehow uh, one off reactions to local contextual stuff. Right. And actually what they are are humanity's white blood cells saying this system does not work yeah. for any of us. Yes. And, and that's a reason to be hopeful. But. Actually, what what I also see happening is this bifurcation, right? The darkness is becoming extremely dark, right. and the light is becoming extremely light, and they're playing off each other, right? Trump is 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 the great trickster shaman. He he's radicalized more people and made more people political than than probably any other phenomena in the in the last five years, and so they're going to play off each other and the uh, the extreme right and and the the sort of hopeful alternatives are. They're going away from each other at a faster and faster rate. And there is going to be a breaking point at some point. And, and if that's something to be hopeful for, I don't know. Uh, but, but there's no other way it can go. I know the scariest thing and the least hopeful thing is things continuing as they are. Because that's certain destruction. There it is. And we'll leave it on that note. Brother. Certain destruction. Thank you for coming on, man. This is great. Yeah, thank I'm you. so thank glad you. to be thank here, you, man. I'm so it's glad really to be good here. To see you. Super producer Matt Leck. I want to thank everybody as always. We'll see you Thursday for On Point. <laughs>